When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno, sending to you live Friday, October 28th. Um, today, we're going to ask the question, is this the melt-up before the meltdown? But before we get to the answer to that question, I have a word from our CEO, Raul. Uh, things are tough out there still, even though we have uh, equities up on the day. And we want to stay true to our mission to help investors. So um, remember that we have reduced our price of a subscription of the essential tier at Real Vision to $99 for the annual subscription. And a subscription to the plus tier is just $400. This uh, discount code will run until the end of October. But back to the question, is this the build up before the meltdown. We've seen positive equity markets uh, again today. And uh, with me to discuss this exact question, I have Michael Guyatt. Michael, it's uh, it's good to see you. Always a pleasure. You know that. Michael, I think it's 10 days uh, back. We, we, we talked about this market and the extreme negative sentiment around equities. What's your take on what's going on in equities uh, these days in uh, relation to this sentiment debate? So I've, I've made that point before that the one thing tops and bottoms have in common is overconfidence by the crowd, right? And while nobody can predict the future, you can identify the conditions under which something is likely to occur, right? Now, October 2nd, I put out a tweet that basically got a lot of impressions and attention and got a lot of insults where I said the end of the world is at hand. That's why a melt up in stocks is about to take place. And I said that because the pace at which yields were rising really became, in my mind, a systemic event, right? Because you can't have 300 plus trillion dollars of global debt where the cost of capital is acting as volatile as we had seen. So because that was an end of the world scenario, it was a very simple calculation in my mind subjectively, they, in quotes, will kick the can down the road. There will be some kind of stabilization that takes place in the bond market. You cut off the system reset tail risk. That's enough for stocks to run higher. I put that tweet out. I can't tell you the amount of insults I got. Um, and I'll tell you, because I used to write and be one of marketwatch.com top writers for a while. Whenever I would make a, a contrarian case for something after a prolonged trend, I would see the same kind of sentiment that I saw throughout this entire move in October on Twitter meaning people that rather than trying to keep an open mind and look at data changing, people that were so entrenched in their existing beliefs to the point where they felt the need to actually personally attack you. And I've used it line before, you know you're right when the counter argument is an insult. The sentiment was so unbelievably dark that we were probably due for a move higher. Now, this is a really important point, which I think people really are not appreciating about the way the stock market has behaved this year. Aside from the hell of treasuries acting worse than stocks, which is why my funds have gone through such a nasty drawdown and why hopefully now they'll come back, I hope. Um, 
you look at the number. I keep referencing this tweet. The number of uh, this data point. The number of weeks that the S and P five hundred has lost money as a percentage of the year was at sixty four percent, the most since nineteen thirty one. There's this saying that it's staircase up, elevator down in terms of markets, right? You go up gradually, and then very suddenly you have a big give back down. Shouldn't the same logic apply the other way too? Because the number of weeks that the S&P has lost money has conditioned people to be bearish because it's been a staircase down this time. So why is it so impossible to think that you couldn't have a very sudden elevator up moment, which would be a melt-up, where stocks really shockingly move higher, surprising everybody for no obvious reasons, just because everyone is so convinced that it keeps going lower. And you know, in the context of a bear market where these kind of moves often happen before lower lows. Michael, I'm pretty used to look uh, looking at uh, sentiment data from, for example, the um, CFTC futures data or the Bank of America fund manager survey on a monthly basis. But it seems as if you uh, put a lot of value um, in the sentiment signal from financial Twitter. So what's your favorite sentiment gauge? My favorite sentiment gauge is, is looking at defensive sectors themselves. So it's not just the the subjective aspect of what I was seeing on Twitter. Final week of September, utilities utterly collapsed against equities as equities were going lower. It's not an opinion. I have I put a research paper, an intermarket approach to beta rotation, won the 2014 Dow Award. When you see after a prolonged decline, utilities very suddenly very weak, that tends to mark a short-term bottom. Now, utilities have been strong the bulk of the year. That's a risk-off signal. That's kind of the joke of my funds. They've actually been correct in the idea of being defensive risk off because what's been strong this year? Utilities. What's been weak this year? Lumber relative to gold. The signals have been right. The expression treasuries were wrong. But my point is that utilities were the first early sign that you would have potentially a low because utilities got smacked at the very end of September into a declining market. That's a risk on signal. And then lumber relative to gold is stabilizing and looking like it wants to perk up a little bit. Again, typically what you see in advance of a risk-on lower volatility regime. So forget about the, the FinTwit arguments for a moment. The quantitative signals were all giving you the same message that you were likely going to have some kind of a, a better environment to take risk under. Now, so long as bond market volatility subsides, again, I think this is uh, critical to this. If, if the end of the world is the bull case, right, meaning bond market volatility stops, stocks start uh, running, we may not be done yet with this move higher because now we're entering the November to April best six-month period where seasonality-wise, stocks tend to do well, right? So you look at that, you look at breadth, what's been leading this whole time? It's been small caps. Everyone keeps talking about Microsoft earnings, Amazon earnings. Underneath the surface, the number of stocks that are rallying, it's like people are not, it's, it's right in front of them. It's so obvious that there's breadth that's improving. And then the other component real quick on this is that Part of my thesis is that the dollar probably on a short-term basis topped. So you have to also cut off not just the tail risk of a of the bond market volatility. You have to cut off the sovereign debt risk, which a strong currency uh, puts you in front of, right? Increases the, the risk of. The dollar looks like it wants to go lower. If it does, that's another reason for stocks to go higher because you cut off that boogeyman, which is some kind of sovereign entity defaulting. And I was one of the very few people earlier in the year basically saying – yeah, there's a sovereign debt crisis coming, given the way the dollar had been behaving back then. But I can't imagine the policymakers are that stupid to now not see that coming. That's why you're seeing some of the dollar swap lines get accessed. So, you know, the data is changing. The, the underlying dynamics have improved. And unfortunately, people seem to think that you need to have a narrative and a catalyst for the move to happen. 
the narrative always follows price. Yeah, that's a, that's a very very fair point. Uh, it, in in terms of uh, headlines this week, I think we've seen probably more than a handful of headlines um, referring to the hopes of the pivot uh, from global central banks as sort of the catalyst for uh, for the price move higher in uh, in equities, uh, but. You refer um, to the bond market stabilization as the catalyst on Twitter time after time this week. Um, what's the difference between those two arguments, Michael? It's interesting because I've used that line before, right? The the Fed doesn't own the bond market. The bond market owns the Fed, right? So the bond market will do the pivot, right? And the pivot doesn't have to necessarily be rates dropping. I think this is the, the problem that a lot of people are saying. Pivot means that rates have to drop. No, pivot just means that the pace at which yields are rising abates, that it slows down. As I keep going back to that point. If, if yields were to have kept on rising the way they had been rising up until this most recent stabilization, I think, this week, 30-year mortgage rates would have been at 20%. I mean, the, the, the bearishness in the bond market without the context of the leverage in the system is absolutely stupid. I mean, I saw a lot of that stuff, right? That's what that was. What I was saying the end of the world. So, I, I, whether the Fed uh, changes its wording or not, the bond market has already said the dynamic is different now. At least I hope. If we look at uh, retail flows versus institutional flows in the context of a uh, meltdown, we've seen that institutional investors have answered in the Bank of America survey month after month, basically, basically for a couple of quarters in a row, that they have a bearish positioning in equities, they take less risk than usual, etc. Uh, but it seems as if the retail flows have uh, been at least slightly more optimistic than the fund managers on average over the past couple of quarters. What do you make of the dynamics between retail flows and institutional flows in the context of this potential meltdown? Okay, so this is an interesting discussion back to small caps for a moment, right? So I'll make the argument that institution cares more about large caps because they're large and they want liquidity. Retail, in quotes, right, that retail trader probably is more focused on smaller cap names. Retail has been in a bear market since February of last year. Okay, that's when a lot of these innovation stocks peaked. It's when small caps went sideways. It's when emerging markets peaked. I keep going back to that argument that the bear market started February 2021. We've already been prolonged in this because that's when breadth topped, which is probably what retail was largely playing. It's it's funny to me. The GameStop saga with hindsight was late January, and it was like a week or two afterwards that the breadth of the market started going sideways and started deteriorating, right, with small caps. So it could very well be that Assuming that's the case, which I've seen data that suggests actually could be the other way, that retail, you know, just in terms of put activity, is probably even more bearish than, than people would think. But it kind of makes sense for retail to want to be a little bit optimistic because we've been going through this for so long. This is not a new dynamic. This is already a very prolonged period of weakness. And maybe some retail is saying, you know what, you're probably due for some kind of move higher too. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. I, I recall we saw a um, 
a kind of a similar meltdown in uh, in equities in the late summer yep. um, after the inflation report uh, of August showing at least signs of abating inflation pressures in the US. What do you make of inflation into year end uh, in the context of this potential meltdown? I have to say, it drives me crazy to know when that people say rates have to rise to a level above inflation. It's complete nonsense. Inflation's lagging. So whatever CPI we're seeing is based on rates from months ago. Right? It's just people are so used to this instant gratification and the idea that everything moves so quickly that they think that the Fed has to go on, keep on on its warpath. And for all we know, inflation may have peaked. Okay, It may have. The damage, by the way, is done. Okay, meaning that no matter what, housing is probably going to keep being weak. You're probably going to have consumers with a lag suddenly start to realize that, wow, their credit card interest rates are going up. Okay, so the damage is done. But for what we know, because nobody knows the unknowable future, it's not impossible to envision a scenario where a year from now we're talking about disinflation or even outright deflation. In other words, the Fed could have already overshot because maybe inflation already peaked, right? And this is what I think is being missed by a lot of these these narratives around elevated inflation. Nobody knows how the path is going to play out. The path is everything. People talk from a macro perspective in terms of endpoint. How you get to the endpoint is all that matters. Speaking of the uh, housing market, uh, it's, by the way, been a, a tremendous catalyst of the core inflation measure over the past two, three, four months. Uh, again, a lacking measure of, of true uh, rental growth in the economy. Uh, but we got new data today. Uh, pending home sales fell by uh, the most in two years. Um, so if we look a bit ahead for the housing market, I know that's uh, of great relevance to a lot of the audience as well, Michael. Can we have a meltdown in equities and a substantial drawdown in housing at the same time? First of all, this year has clearly proven that nothing should – you should not be surprised by anything, right? I mean, the I follow rules-based strategies in my funds, ATAX, RORO, JOJO, and they're predicated on treasuries being the risk-off safe haven. This is the only time in history one out of 20 of the largest drawdowns where treasuries have done worse than equities. Nothing should surprise anybody uh, in general. Now, having said that, this is why I don't think the bear market's over. Okay, because you probably are not going to have the end of the bear market in stocks until you've ended the housing bear market, to your point. Because at the end of the day, how do you break inflation? With homes. How do you break consumer spending? With homes. How do you break consumer confidence? With homes. Right. So that's still early. right? And yeah, at the periphery, obviously, to your point, some of the data is actually looking pretty concerning. I don't think you're going to necessarily have a, a crash, but who the hell knows. right? But this is what's interesting. right? So as we're talking about this, lumber is looking like it's stabilizing. So it's interesting because in the context of a bear market, I go back to path. What if yields were to drop? What if you have a risk-off period after this you know, melt-up I think we're in in stocks, meaning stocks go down and treasury yields fall, which is consistent with risk-on, risk-off dynamics, treasuries being the safe haven again, which hopefully I can capture with my funds. Okay, if that's the case, what happens to 30-year mortgage rates? They drop for a moment in time. What happens to at the margin housing? A feeling that you should buy a home now before rates go higher again. So you can see a scenario where you could get these 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 moves higher in sentiment and pick up in housing activity just because for a moment in time there's a little bit of a relief with yields dropping, right? Which ultimately would still probably result in more risk off at some point, right? But uh, that could result in some kind of optimism actually for housing to actually hold or at least even go up a little bit before going lower. If we look at the supply demand dynamics of the housing market. Um, in terms of supply, we've heard the story for basically years now that there is 
almost a permanent supply scarcity of housing in the US. And if we add to that, that most people currently stuck in a home with a fixed 30-year mortgage, they probably don't want to move. Why sell right now? Um, could you envisage a scenario with a lack of supply into next year? Well, yeah, well, so this is what's so um, contradictory about high rates, right? So you need low rates to get construction, to resolve inventory. Okay, well, good luck with that now. So oddly enough, you can actually make an argument that that's going to restrict supply even more because you're not going to have as much home building. Um, I can make the same argument about uh, competition, right? I, I keep making this point that the real way to solve inflation is with, with competition. Well, good luck trying to have competition and new companies entering various industries when rates are as now elevated as they are, right? So you, this stuff is a little bit more complex, I think, than than most will will think through, right, in terms of implications on higher rates and what your end goal ultimately is. But um, yeah, sure, the the the. the I think that's valid. I think a lot of people are probably just going to stay put, right, in their homes. Okay, so you may just you may have a complete complete collapse in the velocity of housing transactions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a collapse in housing prices, right? Because if people are just not transacting, nobody knows, knows what the real price is. Yeah, but there is an old saying um, saying that volume leads price in housing markets, but not this time around, I guess. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Again, we're in a very weird environment. So you should you should you should really keep an open mind to think that anything and everything can happen. Michael, you've said over and over over the past couple of weeks that um, this is not the end of the world. Um, we have a potential short-term meltup in front of us uh, in, in regards to, uh, to, to equity markets. But if we look a bit further ahead, we've had this discussion all year, when will we enter a recession? Do you think it matters for the medium-term equity outlook um, given the current sentiment? Maybe. <laughs> I, say, I say that because it's it's hard to know because housing is a bigger driver of of expansions and recessions than the S and P. Right, just from the wealth effect standpoint, housing is a even the Fed itself has said that. Right, so could you have a recession and equities rally? Sure, um, probably not very much because at some point you'd think fundamentals matter. And keep in mind also that you know, part of this dynamic with higher rates is you've probably killed off buybacks for a while which has been a big driver of, of PE expansion over the last you know, decade or so. Um, but it's funny, right? Because consumers are still spending, right? So either they're not aware or there really is a lot more cash than people realize floating around. And if that's the case, maybe that is a reason for the economy to actually keep holding on and doing well, at least in nominal terms. If we look at the um, whole pamphlet of reports that we've seen from uh, megatech companies this week, uh, it's been more or less a bloodbath, at, le at least if you look at the top five or 10 tech companies over the past couple of weeks in markets. But one thing I've noticed is that we haven't really seen any layoffs from, from any of these big tech companies. What do you make of the labor market and these big whales in the tech space? Yeah, so so this is this is why the negative narrative, as seductive as it is, is not now being proven out by the data. Because you're right, you would have expected by now to see some layoffs at the margin. Could still be coming, obviously, right? I mean, but you never know. Maybe the Fed can thread the needle, and and you're not going to get to the, the stress point where that's going to be your requirements. I mean, keep in mind the tech companies are also still very flush with cash themselves, anyway. So they can keep the labor in play, right? And everyone's afraid of losing talent. So that kind of makes some sense, I'd argue. 
But uh, I'm going to argue to you that this bloodbath in tech is the best thing imaginable for real stock pickers. The, the, the biggest uh, frustration for anybody that's tried to play momentum is that the momentum was really centered around the fangs, around the mega cap tech names, because rates are so low. So maybe these higher rates are actually going to be very good for everything else around the tech names. You take out some of this money that's been concentrated in these mega cap, large cap tech names, got to go somewhere. So maybe it starts getting deployed in other parts of the economy and the smaller parts of the market. So the the, the fang pain ends up, I used that line on Twitter earlier today, as the generals fall, the soldiers rise, right? I mean, that's kind of what's happening in this breadth move. If we uh, take a step back and look at similar periods in time, um, I think this sounds as if we have sort of a combination of 2000, 2001 ongoing and maybe also the mid 70s. And let me um, um, tell you why. Uh, if we look at the mid 70s, we actually had a build up in equities uh, in 74, 75, five, right around the peak in inflation. That could be the case this time around again. While there is clearly a resemblance to the style um, uh, of the moves that we saw in the equity markets around 2000, 2001, if you're right. What do you make of these historical comparisons? Do you find any particularly compelling comparisons to history? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I always, I'm always cautious with analogies like that because you talk about a sample size of one or two, right? And it's like, you know, the dynamics are so much more different, so much more leveraged, debt to GDP, way more obviously elevated than the 70s. By the way, in the 70s, Treasury still acted as a risk-off safe haven. They were down a lot less. But they still act as a safe haven. Um, it's funny. I keep going back to you. you want to consider buying dislocations and, and selling normality. The biggest dislocation is in the bond market relative to equities, right? which is probably why risk-off is going to come back at some point. But <clears throat> I do think you have to be careful with making too many historical comparisons against prior periods because things are so much more different than ever before in history. Things move faster. The constituents of the market's averages are very different. As long as the, the cause and effect dynamic of interest rates hasn't changed, that's really all that matters, right? You don't necessarily have to kind of look to other periods, I think, for what happens around it. Interest rates really should encapsulate the most important data for the economy. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We have a great question from uh, from our um, audience. Uh, Bo on YouTube asks you, um, what saves the government and the treasury market at this point? Um, do they need to break it so badly that US treasuries become the TINA and yields drop to actual clients buying hand over first? I don't think um, you're ever going to have retail being the the buyer of last resort for the private sector is the buyer of last resort for government debt because because everyone knows the debt, <laughs> right? So it's like, you know, that's the funny thing about this this environment for for treasuries and, and government debt. It's like they have to bail themselves out, right? We can't, the private sector can't do it for the public sector. The public sector has to do it for itself because nobody trusts the public sector, right? Because of inflation and because of the complete incompetence among various political parties and leaders in every country, right? So 
Uh, that's why I'm not I'm not convinced of that argument. I know there were some Fed officials that were arguing that case, right? It's like, oh, rates will rise until somebody until people buy them. That assumes that people are rational. People are not rational. We have a question uh, also from the YouTube channel uh, in relation to natural gas. We've seen a almost a landslide in the price of natural gas in Europe, um, and the price of Henry Hop natural gas in the U.S. has followed, right? Do you think there is a connection between sort of the relief in energy space? And this recent melt up in equities over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, partially. I mean, part of part of the the bond market stabilization should come from commodity prices collapsing, like natural gas, right? Because it's a form of cost push inflation. So there's a logic, I think, to that, right? In terms of collapsing natural gas should mean volatility and yields also abates because now that's less of an inflationary pressure at the margin. It is funny though, and I know you've been on top of this with Twitter on, on uh, your phenomenal handle too, right? It's it, it's amazing to me how everybody was just constantly talking about this energy, natural gas crisis, and showing all these parabolic charts. And I keep going back to recency bias is real, right? Like people really do extrapolate the most recent trends and, and think it's going to persist forever. It's very hard for people to think in terms of mean reversion, right? And that's what's happening now in that space, right, in, in the natural gas space. So. I keep going back to that point. Opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. And I think that that explains partially why uh, the bond market stabilization is here. And I think you're absolutely spot on that we had one of these extremes in terms of sentiment also in the natural gas space in into early September when uh, prices uh, of, uh, of natural gas and electricity peaked in, in, in Europe. We get a ton of questions on your time horizon for this melt-up story, Michael, and I think that's one of the trickiest questions yeah. to answer at all, right? What what do you make of that debate on the time horizon? All right, so so conditions dictate probabilities, probabilities dictate outcome. Okay, so from the signals that I track, right now it looks like probably into early December you're probably okay, right? Now it can continue because if the relative strength keeps on weakening for utilities against the market, if relative strength keeps on improving for lumber to gold, all that would suggest that on a go-forward basis, that can continue, that sort of melt-up scenario can continue. I, I have to, I, I'll be, I think it'll be amazing to watch FinTwit melt down if the Dow Jones Industrial Average turns positive for the year, which is not impossible, okay? I mean, so, so but having said that, it's not a victory lap. I, my hope is that after this comes the return of real risk off meaning stocks falling, credit spreads widening, consistent with what you see in a real recession, and treasury yields dropping, meaning treasuries as a safe haven. I actually really, really want to see that selfishly, right? Because that's how my funds really have a big comeback. You get this risk on move right, and then go risk off into treasuries, and this time treasuries do what they're supposed to do while stocks go down. Right? I, I would love to see that, so I'm a little biased. But from the signals that that I use, which are consistent with these this quant work, all these different research papers that won these different awards, time frame-wise, you're probably good for at least a month. If we look at the uh, long treasury ETF, TLT, uh, over the course of the next month and a half, um, same time horizon as your melt-up story in equities, we've seen early signs of a stabilization in the TLT, but what do you make of the TLT ETF? Well, I was joking. It's like, you know, I think for Halloween, I'm going to be the TLT ETF to scare the ever-living crap out of everybody. Uh, given how unbelievable that price and yield obviously uh, has has behaved, um, I think likely we'll see. I think most likely Treasuries go sideways for a little bit as the stock market's rising, right? That that you end up having 
sort of a feeling of stabilization around these yield levels for the 10-year, for the 30-year, which again is enough to at least present the illusion of certainty that the cost of capital is going to be somewhat stable for at least for now, right? This, that's I always go back to markets need the illusion of, st of stability, the illusion of it, right? Mm -hmm. So then, and then hopefully the risk-off happens, meaning then it pick, picks back up and then stocks go down, which again is what I'm hoping for. But, um, you know, you always want to consider buying dislocations. Okay, so the biggest dislocation I would argue is in quality bonds relative to junk debt. Because what's happened here is if you look at AAA bonds, a lot of them are trading in terms of least funds below their COVID crash levels very deeply, including B, whereas junk debt is trading above its COVID crash levels. You can look at LQD or AGG. Okay, LQD of B, AGG, AAA. Both ex-dividend bond ETFs are below their COVID crash levels, whereas the junk debt ETF, HYG, is trading still above its high, its uh, COVID crash level. That's a dislocation, right? So in other words, conservative has done far worse than aggressive, which is really bizarre when you think through it, okay? That's a dislocation that I think for those that are looking for income, that's an area that's worth paying attention to. It's also one of the reasons I'm excited for my bond ETF, JoJo. But if if I'm right on that, there's going to be money that goes into AAA because now there's some real blue chip names that have very high yield. And then at some point, you're going to have credit spreads blow out because at some point, all of this massive leverage by the junk debt issuers, there's going to be a concern that they're going to roll over all that debt at much higher rates at some point. And then investors will probably front run that by selling, right? Um, that so, so as much as I'm arguing for melt-up, for the, the asset class or the area to really focus on if you're a longer-term investor, probably is high-quality AAA bonds. Interesting viewpoint, Michael. Uh, let me try and summarize the discussion. First of all, the melt-up is probably already here, according to you. Um, and one reason why you think the meltup is here is that the sentiment is basically as bad as it gets, uh, or at least it was uh, at the beginning of October. Uh, the time horizon is at least until early December or thereabout. And meanwhile, the TLT uh, ETF or the long end of the yield curve could sort of stabilize alongside higher equities. But um, before we leave you all uh, for the day, I uh, wanted to play a soundbite from uh, an interview that aired uh, earlier today on Real Vision. And according to Raul, our CEO, this is the most important interview in the history of Real Vision. So um, let's listen to this soundbite and get back to the discussion. And see, what's the point now whereby you can put in Robert De Niro as Gandalf, and one second later, you get an image output. So the first output of that was uh, that hit the mainstream was Dali from OpenAI. That was in April of this year. So you can say a cybercone goth girl overlooking near Tokyo, and boom, eight seconds later, it's generated. And this is a totally yeah. unique creative image that did not exist in the world before, right? It did not exist in the world before. All the data that went into that, so it was about 600 million images, it can't recreate any of those images. Instead, it's learned the principles of that. So again, it's the principle-based analysis, which is insane, right? Um, because it's like, again, it's the heuristic stuff that we do all the time. And it can combine different concepts. So you can say a Van Gogh by Banksy, and it will do a Van Gogh by Banksy, or kind of do Scream. And now there's more and more technologies that have emerged from that. So OpenAI kind of uh, announced the closed beta of that. And then my company, Stability AI, created a version that was 30 times faster and more powerful.
The great interview is uh, already out for the essential tier today at the Real Vision platform. But Michael, I have uh, one thing for you before we leave the show for the day, because I've made it my trademark to always conclude the daily briefing with a meme. Uh, and I've made a personal meme for you today uh, because I simply love talking to you. I love how you always test the narratives. Um, and therefore, I always learn something when I discuss with you. So here's the meme for you. Michael Guyet, time for a meld-up. This is fine <laughs> amidst the fire. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure to host you. That, that perfectly summarizes what exactly what I said October 2nd. Yeah, exactly. I will be back myself again Monday with uh, Katie Stockton guesting uh, the show. Have a great weekend out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.